0: This episode of the Canadian Love Map contains a brief mention of sexual assault. Please take care. This is a true Canadian love story. We were meant to be together. I can't imagine my life without you. Honestly, he's a light of my life. It's nice to be in that tractor beam of love. I'm her biggest fan.
1: I think I knew I'd lost my heart again.
0: (laughs) I knew I wanted a marriage like that.
1: Difficult roads can lead to very beautiful destinations. Well, love is the most important thing. for a long, long time, my mind and my heart were kind of kept separate and, and finally they joined. They were both going in the same direction. My mind kept saying, don't go there, it hurts too much. Just don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. And my heart was, I wonder how he is, I wonder how he's doing, I wonder, I hope he's okay, you know?
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. Today's love story belongs to Yolande from New Brunswick. This mother and grandmother held on to a secret for decades, the buried memory of a pregnancy and birth that wasn't cause for celebration. In fact, it was mired in pain. But one day on the heels of her retirement, a registered letter arrived that changed Yolande's life and led her back to the child she'd left behind. Now she's written a book that will help thousands of others who've walked the same path. It's called Long Lost Mom. This is the Canadian Love Map. Yolande, welcome to the Canadian Love Map. I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. I'm excited to speak with you.
1: Thank you. I I find it very exciting also, and I have been waiting too.
0: (laughs) So let's start by having you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world.
1: Well, I'm a happy 75-year-old. I love life. I have been retired for at least eight years and uh, have just been enjoying relationships and traveling and doing all kinds of things. And then uh, five years ago, I just decided to write a book because of the circumstances in my life. Um, I'm the mother of four children and a grandmother of two. I love learning. I love psychology. I love religious studies. I, um, I guess learning is what light, lights me up.
0: That's a beautiful way to put it. Had you always been a writer?
1: No. <laughs> um, many, many times in my life, people said, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I kept saying, no, I can't write a book. Spelling is not my strong point, And I can't write a book. And never, I had never dreamt of writing a book. I have never really thought of it. But I have been writing all my life. Uh, writing reports when I was working in human resources, uh, writing, I went back to university when I was 40. So like even in my fifties, I wrote my pieces. I had been writing all along and I love writing just for myself. I have all these books, just little books lying around on my desk and by my bed. And whenever I feel inspired with a thought, I write it because I think I'm going to lose it if I don't write it.
0: And, and what were you doing before you retired?
1: Like when I was younger, I worked as a, a counselor or nurse with children with handicap in a hospital school in St. John. Um, later on, I had opened my own kindergartens and daycares for a long time. After a while, um, I got a job working with women's outreach, trying to help women, counsel them, do, doing employment counseling and things like that. And that's what I did until I retired. I was working with wellness in human resources.
0: So that sort of took you on a more soulful path. Is that right?
1: My favorite subject was always psychology. I always wanted to be a psychologist. Definitely when I went to study, that was my line of study. But because of my age and because I had not had previous studies, I knew that becoming a psychologist was going to take years and I kind of took a long path and it took me 12 years before I got my master's, but it was worth it. I was always, always interested in personal growth. When I look at my whole career, it was always helping people, either as in the nursing or in the teaching, but it was always in that line. I always wanted to help people.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful that it's a calling really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And when I got my job with the government, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do counseling and coaching. Like I, I was getting paid to do what I loved, and what I had been doing all along, but mostly as a volunteer or on contracts. And so it was amazing. I just I loved my job. I really did.
0: It's it's like you had arrived. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wonderful. And You also talked about how much you loved traveling, and I know that at the uh, end of one particular journey you encountered a life-changing surprise. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, when I when I got my big job, I'm gonna start from there, when I got my big job with the government to do counseling and coaching, which I loved, uh, it was in year 2000 and that was my lucky year, I considered because I got my degree, I got my big job. My daughters were both working away and one of them was in Europe. And so she said, mom, why don't you come and visit? So I said, okay. So I went down to the travel agency and I said, how much would it cost me to get a ticket to go to England? And they told me. And so I said, okay, I want one. And she said, do you have a passport? And I said, what's a passport? I had never traveled overseas or anywhere. So so, so she said, you have to get a passport. So I got my passport and I started traveling. And I fell in love with Europe. And I decided right there and then that I was not going to wait until I was retired to travel. So every year after that, I made one big trip. When I retired, my big trip was to go to Japan. And when I arrived from Japan, I picked up my mail. And that is where my book begins, because I received a letter from a social worker saying that they would like me to contact them for an important personal matter. So that was the beginning.
0: What was your reaction when you heard that? That sounds, that sounds kind of daunting.
1: I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I, um uh, I picked up the envelope and I just looked at it and I knew, I knew immediately, even before opening it, what it was. I knew they were searching for me and I knew that my son was looking for me. And so I, um I felt very weak and I knew I was in no shape to drive. I was just, I made my way to the car and I got home somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> and, uh, plopped myself on the couch and just, you know, kept going over and over. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And the fear, it was the fear of facing the past.
0: Wow. Okay, so you're you're going to have to dig into that past for us now and tell us what, what son?
1: Well, when I was a young lady in the 60s, I was raped and I had a baby, a baby boy, and I was very much afraid I would never be able to love him because of what had happened. And so I put him up for adoption and I never spoke about it after very, very few people knew.
0: So not only were you finding out that he was perhaps reaching out, but you also had to, it's like picking a scab off. You had to, you know, look once again at that that pain and that wound and trauma. Yes. Talk about bittersweet. <laughs> yes,
1: you want to believe it. What happened is just by being still and trying to pull myself together, I soon realized that there were two stories. There was the story of the rape and there was the story of the baby that I gave up. The hardest one for me was the baby that I gave up. But I knew that when I looked at that, I mean, they were connected. So it was bringing back the whole past. I had to look at everything or I I started feeling everything that I had put away for so many years.
0: Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you feel like you had compartmentalized it?
1: Absolutely. To keep my sanity, I really, I, I don't know, like the expression that I often use is I kind of put it in a box. I always knew it was there and I, I I, knew and I thought about it once in a while, but I had put it in a box and I was very disciplined not to go open that box unless unless it was for counseling or when I was receiving help, but I, I did not want to keep thinking about it and thinking about it because it would just drag me down. So it was always, yes, it's there, but keep moving on, keep moving on, keep moving on.
0: So in your language, um, with what you've studied in psychology and, and counseling, would you agree that you you put it in the box and you never really processed it?
1: I had pro- processed a whole lot of it, and thank God, because that was what permitted me to be open to it, I think, uh, because I had done so much work on it before. I had, when I was young, I was reaching for every book I can for on self-help and listening to Wayne Dyer and Louise Hay and always trying to pull myself together. I went for official counseling, too, and then I, I joined groups of self-help. And so I had worked out a lot of the issues, but mm-hmm. still I well enough to be a very happy person and to be able to function and, and function well. And but it was still there were still aspects of it that I had not wanted to go to or not wanted to touch.
0: So tell me about what happened next, please.
1: I gave myself time to take care of myself because I knew that's what I had to do. I also had learned that, you know, it would take about 48 hours before the rush of adrenaline and the the shock would calm down. So I decided not to do anything right away. I decided to keep everything as normal as I could in my life, you know, keep going to to my exercises, keep going to play Pilates. Um, And just went on as if nothing was there, meeting the people. But I had I was very fortunate that I had a great trip that I could kind of go back to. So when I meet people right away, that's what I talk about. They say, oh, how did you like Japan? And I tell them all the stories about Japan.
0: Wow. It sounds like you really honored your own boundaries and almost treated yourself like a client. Yes. you know what I mean?
1: Yes. Yes. I knew what to do. So I gave myself three whole days, you know, knowing I had to make the call, knowing I wanted to make the call. But... Uh, unable to reach for that phone right away, just processing everything that was going on. And then on Friday morning, because I knew it was going to be the weekend before I went to my exercises, I said, okay, this is it. You have to make the call to the social worker. So I did.
0: And what did that call yield?
1: It was... um, It was difficult to make, but at the same time, uh, I finally had to face it. He had news from my son. He said, like your son said, I could tell you this, you know, like I could tell you that the adoption went well, things like that. I was not ready to speak to my son or to, I just had to take some more time. So he said he could, he could help me. He could facilitate the conversations or the letters. And in that time, like all the adoption records and everything were still locked. They were still sealed. So he could not reveal anything unless I gave him permission.
0: The social worker, you mean? Yeah. Right.
1: So I, he said he could send me a, a form to fill. And on it, I could say exactly what I wanted to reveal. So I said I would think about it. I gave him permission to get back to my son and uh, and discuss, talk about our discussion.
0: So a connection was forged, even though it wasn't a direct connection. It was like a pipeline was established. That's right. And did your son, to your knowledge, did your son know about the circumstances of your pregnancy?
1: No, that was one of my questions to the social worker, because I said, you know, I always knew I would never look for him because I wasn't supposed to because I had signed papers saying that I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But I always knew that if he showed up, that I, I would not reject him again. And so one of my first questions to the social worker was, does he know that I was raped? And he said no. He went to check the files and he said no. There's nothing that says that he knows.
0: Mm, it's so much. And I I can't help but wonder, if I was in your position, I'm thinking I might, you know, be caught in the dilemma. What is worse for him to not know who his mother is or to know how he was conceived?
1: Yeah. And I don't think right at the moment when I was talking to the social worker, I did. The only thing I knew was that he deserved to know the truth Mm. But I was more concerned about how I was going to react like I was petrified because I had gone for some counseling. But I also knew that when I would see him, there would be a physical reaction. And I was afraid of what my reaction would be, because what I felt the most was fear. Uh, It was tapping into the rape. Mm -hmm. And so I was afraid to see him, afraid that he may look like his father, afraid that I couldn't accept him afraid that I would maybe faint or or slam the door in his face. You know, like I didn't know how I was going to react. So wow. it, that was very, very scary. Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? You know.
0: But isn't it amazing that you had been working your whole life, in unknowingly in a way, you'd been working your whole life to prepare yourself for this.
1: Absolutely. 46 years later, you know all my life thinking, well, thinking and not thinking it because pushing it away, but always with the fear, like little things would happen. And I would think, oh my gosh, like he he could show up. He could show up on my doorstep. What would I do, you know? But I wouldn't stick on that. I just put it back in the box, (laughs) you know? It's not there. It's not now when it happened. He wasn't on my doorstep, definitely. And some of the information that I got was that he was living in Vietnam, so he definitely wasn't at my doorstep, um, but he was searching for me and I couldn't refuse that. I knew immediately that I would give him the information and and I would, I would answer his call, whatever it was. I just didn't know how I was going to do it.
0: Wow. I, I see this image of your big, beautiful heart, you know, being there as a potential for him, but you just not knowing if you could open it to him. Yes. That's yeah. uh, really touching. Yeah. So so what happened next?
1: With the social worker, I had a talk and he said, do you suppose seeing photos would help? Because I told them why I would not search for them and, and why I, I would be open to something, but I didn't know what. So he asked if I would be open to having pictures. And I said, yes, I think I'm ready for that. And I, I sincerely felt I was, you know, like I checked inside and I said, Can you look at a picture at least? And I thought, yes, I can. It was okay. So I gave him permission to get back to my son and tell him that uh, he had, he had found me and that maybe if I saw a picture, it would help. And he also said, I can, one of the big reasons, one, the very first reason why I couldn't see myself talking to him is how do you tell a person that his father raped you? And I, I couldn't imagine how I would tell him that. And so the social worker said, I can help you with that. I can tell him. And so I agreed to that. And so a few days later, like this was Friday. And then on Monday, I received a letter from the social worker saying, here are two letters that your son has written for you. So he sent me the letters. There was a lot of stuff crossed out. Anything that was identifying would would be crossed out. And so I read the two letters, and then it took me a couple of days before I could answer. Like I knew the letter, I knew, or I was hoping that I would get a letter, but I was still taken aback when I actually got it. And I realized it was really him writing to me. And his words really, really touched me because at one place, he said, my mother should feel no shame. She should be happy. She gave me life. And that went right straight to my heart and from there on I couldn't stop going forward instead of going backwards and trying to hold back you know
0: this podcast is brought to you by Charm Diamond Centres Canada's largest family owned jewelry store they are proud to be putting love on the map and the staff at Charm Diamond Centres are thrilled to be a part of your love story too so visit charmdiamondcenters.com or one of your local stores love starts here when did the book idea come about? At what stage of your relationship?
1: Well, we wrote for a year and a half. And during that time, I mean, there was a lot of growing going on. Uh, we were writing emails back and forth. And then I asked them if I could come and see him in Vietnam. So my two daughters and I went to meet him.
0: Oh, Yolande, I have to back up for a moment then, of course. When and how did you go about telling your daughters?
1: Oh, that was, that's a whole other chapter in my book,
0: <laughs> about telling my son first,
1: because I have a son also, uh, telling my son that he had a brother. The fascinating thing is that my son, he was adopted in a little place called Chediac Bridge. And I had, by that time, had moved to, I was married and had moved to Dalhousie and up north. So After I separated 10 years later, we came back and I lived in Grand Dig and my kids all went together to the same school without knowing that I had another son, but the two sons were in the same teams at school. And every time I would go, I I never knew that I had another son that was there. It, It was nerve wracking thinking I had to tell my children, but at the same time, That was one of my greatest sorrows all my life was that I wanted to tell my kids and I didn't know how, and I didn't know when, and it was just so overwhelming. And I just kept thinking, waiting for the perfect time to tell them, but there was never a perfect time, but this kind of forced my hand because I had to tell them now, you know? I mean, they took it very well. They were very understanding and supportive. And so all three of us were going to go meet them, but then my son had Uh, other engagements and because of his work and he had to bow out at the last minute. We had the tickets bought, but the two girls and I went to Vietnam to meet him.
0: So off you flew to Vietnam with your daughters. Yes. And how did you, how how was that first meeting? Where was it? You know, how, uh, what were the circumstances?
1: Well, we, we planned it together, writing back and forth, Trevor and I, and, we decided that we would meet at the hotel. So my daughter and I flew to Hanoi and he came to pick us up there. And the meeting was fantastic. Like I, don't, I had kept away so much from pain and things like that. I couldn't read books about stories like that. And I couldn't watch any movies. And I like there's a lot of things that I didn't do in my life because I was always guarding my mental health. One of the things I didn't want was a lot of drama. So I said to my girls, they they had said, you know, like, we'll give you all the time you want and privacy and things like that. And so I said, like, I don't want any drama. I don't want any pictures. I don't want, I just want to live it and feel it in my heart. And just So that's how it was. Like, we, uh, we were in the hotel room. We were waiting for him to arrive. And I said to the girls, I'm going to go downstairs and surprise them. And so they just asked, do you want us to come? I said, no, I, I want to go down by myself. So I went down and um, it was really quite incredible. And both of us, it, it was it was the joy, it was the happiness, it was the, the laughing. We were just laughing and looking at each other and, and saying, it can't, it can't be, are you really there? You know, it, it was really, really incredible. And, and I really felt inside me that... Uh, I think for a long, long time, my mind and my heart were kind of kept separate. And, and finally, they joined. They were both going in the same direction. Because in my mind, I my mind kept saying, don't go there. It hurts too much. Just don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. And my heart was, I wonder how he is. I wonder how he's doing. I wonder, I hope he's okay, you know.
0: Really? Just listening you to you describe it, it sounds like this kind of joyful rebirth. Mm-hmm. You know, the joy you didn't get to have at his actual birth, you yes. managed to experience then. Yes,
1: yes. And to me, and and I assume to him too, I don't want to speak for him, but, but it felt like that. I mean, I didn't see a 46-year-old man standing in front of me. It was my baby. It was just my baby. And, uh... And for him, it was just like my mom. It was very incredible, really incredible.
0: You were ready for him. And yes. it sounds like he was ready for you.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and uh I I always told them one of the best things that you did to help us along was going through a third party to find me because because of that fear. I thought, you know, had he shown up at my door and and I Maybe I would have fainted. Maybe I would have slammed the door. I don't know what I would have done. But he would have been so hurt, and it wouldn't have been his fault, and it wouldn't have been my fault. But So for him to go through a third party and give me chance to, to do that healing by myself, you know, like for a year and a half, we wrote back and forth. We got to know each other, and then finally it was a big moment, you know.
0: That's extraordinary. And I also think it's extraordinary that – you ended up, as I understand it, writing the book not just for yourself and about your own story, but because of so many others.
1: Exactly. And that's what happened when I got back from Japan. When I got back from visiting him for two weeks in Vietnam, um, I got another notice from Fredericton saying that, as of April, 2018, all adoption records that had been sealed for hundreds of years were going to be opened. And I realized like we were part of a bigger story. It was the story of all the unwed mothers and the illegitimate children. And at the same time, like when they were opening these records, I mean, it was published, it was on the newspapers and everything, you know, adoption records are being opened and now, now the children and the parents have access to the information. and. And when I read this notice that said they were going to open the all the adoption records, immediately my heart just went out to all these mothers that are still in hiding. And, and I remember the pain or the, the shock that I got when I was found and the pain. And at the same time, the relief, because you've been wanting to talk about it all your life and you can't, you know. So I thought, oh, my God, like there has to be tons of people that are still in hiding and tons of children searching and
0: like thousands, we're talking thousands, right?
1: <laughs> yes, there's over two two thousand births that were registered between 1946, 1971 that were illegitimate births in New Brunswick. And in Canada, there were six hundred over six hundred thousand in Canada. And this was happening also in in the UK in uh, in the US, in New Zealand. And all these countries, little by little, are opening the, the, the records now. And people are looking for each other. And also because of DNA. People, I, I, I mean, people come up to me when I do a reading in my book. And people come up to me and say, you know, like, I'm 30 years old. I just found out that I was adopted. I'm petrified to find my mother. But you help me understand. It's a story that's very current. And it's a story that had the link to a greater story
0: and you give them such a gift in in talking about the fact that you were in hiding yes you know deep in hiding for so long and and you've managed to go from there to yeah. not only embracing your son but to putting it out into the world for others to read and learn from yeah. like that's a that's an incredible gift in my own book, I talk about the fact that so many people in our world have a negative connotation around self-help books or or journeys of self-exploration, and yet what you've learned and what I've learned is that it is true that is a self-centered endeavor, but being self-centered is not just a gift to yourself but to others. Yeah, Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, totally. A hundred percent. It's one of the things that pushed me all through my life was to get better and to get healed so that I would be a good mother to my kids. That was my goal, because I believe that the more I healed, the better they would be for it. I mean, the more love I had in my heart, the more love they would have too, you know?
0: Well, I've got a lot of love in my heart right now. <laughs> You've <laughs> filled it up. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yolande, just tell me about the cover of your book. Okay, the
1: the cover is um, two chickadees. Uh, One winter, once my son found me, I was learning to paint, and I painted two chickadees on a branch with some berries. And it was one of my best paintings. And uh, in the spring, and I didn't paint it because my son had found me, but in the spring, I looked at it one day, and it just reminded me of this little book, a children's book that says, Are You My Mother?, And it's almost like one chickadee is looking at the other and saying, are you my mother? And uh, it it reminded me of that. And that's why I asked when they did the book cover, could they use my my painting? So they've got something which is very, very similar.
0: Tell me about your relationship with your son now, just so we don't leave any uh, loose hanging threads before we leave this beautiful conversation.
1: We have been very close. You know, it's not a fairy tale. It's like sometimes you know people say well i read your book and it's and it's so wonderful and but it's not it's a happy ending but it's not a fairy tale it's real life we have our challenges and yeah. and we have to work through them and sometimes it's very difficult
0: and it strikes me that's the same as any parent child relationship exactly yeah and and we have we all you know we came into it's uh,
1: you know it's almost like a marriage in a way like you come in with all your own baggage yes and uh so there's a lot of things to work out, and and some things will never be worked out. Is you just have to accept that's the way it is.
0: Well, I am so grateful that you were willing to not only tell us your story, but to tell your story to the world and share it, on you know on behalf of so many people. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine how many messages you get from people saying thank you. I mm-hmm. needed this and. You're telling my story. I need to take time
1: also to, uh, to absorb all this, you know, knowing that my story is out there, knowing that people know now. You know, it rocks the boat, and I have to, to just go slowly. And I, I don't think I will ever be a great marketer, so I don't know how many people will read it. But my intention is that it falls in the hands of people that need it the most.
0: Where can people
1: find it? Any bookstore. You can walk into any bookstore and order it but it's not on the shelves. Um, mm-hmm. So it's at Amazon. It's at Chapters. It's at any bookstore. You can you can request it. If I'm planning on doing a tour eventually, maybe in the
0: fall. And the book, of course, is called Long Lost Mom. Mm-hmm. I want to say thank you for writing it and mm-hmm. for living it.
1: Well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak about it. I'm sure it's going to reach a lot of people.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. And if you want to help us spread the love even more, rate and review our podcast. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter. this has been a pod starter production, production.